Thank you for downloading the weekly sermon from Trinity Reformed Church in Bloomington, Indiana. To find more great content, please check out our website at trinityreformed.org. Enjoy the sermon. Good morning. <clears throat> Pastor Jody, if you're new here, welcome. We're working through the book of Philippians as a church. We are in chapter 3 again today, and we're going to be working through verses 1 to 11 this week and next, focusing on the first six verses of chapter 3 this week. We're going to take a break from Philippians during the season of Advent and come back to it again in the new year. Our text this morning is Philippians 3, 1 to 11. This is God's Word, and it is eternally true. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble to me, and it is a safeguard for you. Beware of the dogs. Beware of the evil workers. Beware of the false circumcision. For we are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh. If anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ, and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. Chapter 3 marks a turning point in this letter to the Philippians. Paul, with his use of the word finally, which really just means now for the rest, for everything else, he's announcing not only start of a new section, but also the taking up of his final great theme. Up to this point in the book, he's been talking about the theme of Christian unity, the necessity of that. And here he starts talking about the necessity of Christian joy. He says, finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. This is the next great theme. We talked last week just about those few words there and the centrality of joy in the Christian life and the Christian faith. It's not like an optional upgrade or bonus feature. It's not like the elite package Christianity. It is pretty much the point. It is the point. Joy is the promised hope of heaven. Joy, your joy, eternally. The psalmist puts it in beautiful words when he says in Psalm 16, in your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand there are pleasures forever. That's the hope of a Christian, eternally. And even now, by faith, we can 
enter into that joy and experience and taste it for ourselves. Peter puts this this way in First in uh, First Peter one eight. He says, "Though you have not seen him, so you're living here and you're living by faith and hoping in the future. Though you've not seen Jesus, you love him, and though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory." This is. This is the, supposed to be the experience of a Christian who lives by faith and hopes in the promises of God. If you're not experiencing joy in your walk with God, you're doing it wrong. You're doing it wrong. Something has gone wrong. Joy is essential to our faith. Which means, and I'm not being cute, it is serious business. Joy is serious business. It's something worth defending, something worth promoting and insisting upon. Which is why we find Paul here, first of all, commanding joy, that we seek joy and find our joy in the Lord, and we find him warning sternly, strongly, vehemently against false gospels, false teachers who are in the church promoting a completely different system than simple faith in Jesus, which is really amounts to a joy-stealing, joy-robbing existence and ideology, philosophy, approach to religion, what have you. So for the sake of the Philippians' joy, for the sake of their joy, Paul is returning to themes, ideas that he has spoken to them before. He's repeating himself. He says he doesn't mind doing it. In verse 1, he says, to write the same things again is no trouble for me. He knows he's repeating himself, but it's no trouble. He said things to them in person in years past, things they're very familiar with, his own story, the, the fundamentals of the gospel. He's going to return to that here. He doesn't mind doing it. It's important always to come back to fundamentals. I was, I'm, a, I'm a trained classical violinist in a former life, and I went and got a postgraduate degree in violin performance at a school in England. By the time I went there for that degree, I had played violin going on 19 years, pretty seriously. And what happened to me when I got there? New teacher, you know, I'm playing fancy pieces, uh, I mean, I'm pretty advanced, and what, what I got was a good close to six months of open strings and simple scales. So open strings is like I don't even get to use my left hand. I just hold the bow, and I'm playing open strings for weeks. That's all I'm allowed to do until I can make the kind of sound that he's after. And then I get to add to that some scales so I can play in tune like he's after my teacher. Pretty humiliating at this point in my life. What was the result? Complete transformation of my sound and my playing and my own joy in playing the violin. Where had this been all my life? It's important to come back to fundamentals constantly. We can be glad that Paul's going to repeat himself about the basics, Christian faith, the simple things, the foundational things can be transformative, even for those long-timers, to come back to those things. Paul has another more pressing reason for coming back to these things, and that is these people are in danger. There's people who are oppressing them, speaking uh, contrary things, presenting a different system and approach to God that Paul sees as completely contrary and, and utterly opposed to the simple gospel that he has 
um, given them the foundation that he has laid for faith in Jesus. This danger was, is in the form of the Judaizers. This is the great con- controversy of the New Testament. So I'm going to spend a little bit of time explaining who these Judaizers are, because this is something throughout most of the letters of the New Testament that you're going to encounter and help you understand what's going on. This is like the big conflict in most of the New Testament. The Judaizing party was a party or a faction in the church made up of Jews or proselytes to Judaism who accepted the claim that Jesus was the Messiah. So there are believers in Jesus. They claim, they profess to trust in him as their Messiah. But they also insist on the whole church practicing with them the customs of Moses, the rite of circumcision, the dietary laws, the basics of Judaism. They insisted on this. It was so important, so vital in their view that the whole church do this, that they would go around after Paul, wherever Paul had been, wherever he had laid a foundation of faith, where he had organized a church, they would show up in town after he left, and they would talk to the church and try to persuade them to, to accept, it's good that you've got Jesus, that's great, we applaud you. But what you need now to do to have the full package is be circumcised. You need to be like a Jew. This is the covenant sign. This is the ancient way that God has established for his people. And we are the true people. We of all people should be circumcised. Come on. This was their, this is their claim, their project. And all the things that circumcision stood for in the, Jew, in the Jewish way of life, the faithful Jewish way of life. They could not accept that these ceremonies and these customs were uh, pointing, they served for a time to point forward to Jesus who was going to come and were fulfilled in him. So they, they looked at biblical prophecy, they looked at the biblical story and their own history through the eyes of their own self-righteousness, sense of superiority, prejudice towards others. They read the Bible that way. They, they thought that God had chosen them because they were actually special. Contrary to God's own testimony in Deuteronomy 7, where he says, actually, you were the least of the people, that's why I chose you, so I could show myself to be great. (laughs) It's about me, not about you. And now I am showing myself greater, this is what the Spirit's revealing in these days, I'm showing myself to be even greater still by expanding my blessings to all the nations. And the way I'm doing that is I'm removing these signs and ceremonies, these customs, which formerly divided you Jews from other people by my intention for a time, set you apart. Now I'm removing them so that I can make out of all peoples one new nation, one new people of God on, with new signs and new, new ways and new practices that are appropriate for that new day. That's what the Spirit was doing. And these people thought that was sacrilege violation of fundamental things, could not accept it. And in fixating on circumcision, insisting on it, and all of these, these former practices and ways, not getting on board with the Holy Spirit's leading, they showed themselves to have another problem, which is just basic, the same problem that Jesus encountered in his preaching constantly with the Pharisees. A gross misuse and relation, a wrong relationship to the law entirely. That they used it, they focused on externals and on ceremonies and on rites, and used the law 
as a system for proving themselves as worthy before God and before others. The law was never intended to be used that way. That's what the Pharisees had done. These people imported that whole mentality towards the law and to external things into faith in Jesus. So they're basically just selling, promoting a baptized Phariseeism in the church. It's oppressing the church it's binding consciences where God has liberated them. And I was thinking about this this morning, that it's one thing for you and me to struggle at times, as we do, to keep faith in Jesus free from our own works and efforts. It's really hard, very tempting to let our pride and our flesh get in, in there in the mix in our way of approaching God. That's, that's very common. That's, that's the constant struggle for every Christian. It's one thing to have that struggle. It's another thing entirely to, to, to bake that into a religious system and to promote that as godliness, which is what these men were doing. And so Paul warned sternly against them, denounced them, used some very heated language. He does it here. We know he's talking about these men because this is the same language that he uses and the same names that he calls them, that he calls them in Galatians. He calls them in verse 2. He says, beware. Well, three times, beware, beware, beware. So very emphatic. But beware of who? Beware of the dogs. Even today, in our pet-loving culture, it's not nice to call somebody a dog. But back in those days, dogs were not cute. They were like the, the scavengers, the, the hyenas, the jackals. That's like dogs in ancient, the ancient world. This is a very, very rude thing to say. So you say these things when you, when you, only when you mean it, when you need to. And what he's doing is, a lot, with all these terms, there's a lot of irony in them. So the, these people, the Judaizers, the circumcised ones, looked down on the Gentiles as filthy and dirty. And Paul turns that back on them and says, they think of you this way, but no, actually, they're the dogs. Beware of them. Beware of the evil workers, he adds. Paul's favorite word for a missionary is a worker, my fellow worker, Epaphroditus. So these men were workers, they were missionaries, they were evangelists, but for evil. Beware of the evil missionaries. Sober. Beware of the false circumcision. Now, this does not get across the heat of what Paul is actually saying, okay? This is the most brutal one of all. In this group of people, the Judaizers, went by another name too, which was the circumcision party or the circumcision. That's how they were known, the circumcision. And in Greek, the word for circumcision is peritome. Paul uses a different word here, katatome which really means the cutters, the mutilators, the castrators. Beware of them, the castrators. That's really harsh, <laughs> heated rhetoric, isn't it? And it's also, again, very full of irony. Because to be castrated in the Old Testament, under the Old Testament law, or to be a mutilator, meant you could not participate in the worship of God. You were not admitted into the temple with God's people for worship. 
God was so against self-harm, self-mutilation, the practice, evil practice of castration, that he made it clear, no, they're barred from my worship. These people, Paul is saying, by insisting on circumcision, uh, and by promising to bring you in to the full worship of God, are actually cutting themselves off and you with them. They're not just the false circumcision. It's a bit more loaded than that. Those are strong words. Brothers and sisters, if your pastors use strong words to denounce people, dangers, spiritual danger, don't take offense at them. Don't take offense at us, okay? You don't live in a safe environment spiritually. The church, the Christian church, is not a safe spiritual environment, or the Christian world, let's put it that way. There are da- These people, the Judaizers, were in the church, and they were promoting something completely false and lethal and dangerous. So Paul is right to use words like this. Don't take offense if your pastors do. It's for your protection, for your safety. Are there dangers like this, this dangers of legalism in the church today? There are. And they're every bit as compelling and beguiling as they were to those people then. We, we look back on generations and hundreds of years of teaching about the Judaizers. And we think, well, we know, we know what that's all about. We know what that looks like. It's still around, but in different forms subtler forms, and it's very beguiling today. So don't think that just because we understand the Judaizers means we've got legalism licked, okay? How do we recognize it? How do we recognize it? Well, the best way is to start by recognizing it in ourselves, which is what we're going to try to do today, what Paul is going to really helpfully do for us as he lays out his own experience as somebody who lived under that system and excelled in it. It's going to help us. Here, though, Paul is working to protect the Philippians from the spiritual intimidation of the Judaizers. He says, the things that these mutilators claim to be able to do for you, the things that they think they can make you through circumcision, you already are. You are that right now without circumcision. And they, with their circumcision, are not. He says in verse 3, For we are the true circumcision. You and me, Philippians, we are the true. I'm a Jew, you're a Gentile. We are the true circumcision. What does he mean? What does he mean? He's speaking to people largely who are uncircumcised. So why does he call them that? Well, he's explained this in Romans, in, in writing for all time. He's probably explained this to them in person, how this works. But here's what he says in Romans 2, verse 28. He is not a Jew who was one outwardly. Nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. That was merely a sign pointing to a heart reality that God wanted for his people. And here's what we have. He is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is that which is of the heart. An inward cleansing and renewal of the heart. By the Holy Spirit, not by the letter, 
And his praise is not from men, but from God. That's what Paul explains in Romans. And so he's saying here, we have this circumcision, you and me. We have this inward cleansing, this renewal. And that means we are Abraham's descendants and the inheritors of the promises because, he adds in verse 3, we are the ones who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus. Our glory is in the finished work of Jesus Christ. We have the sign of that glory in us, the presence of his abiding Spirit, igniting our worship of, of God. What more do we need? There's nothing more than that. What more sign does God need to, 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 dim, to give in order to demonstrate that we are his true people and he owns us as his own? So there's nothing more that's needed is what Paul is saying. These people with their confidence in external circumcision he says, are glorying in the flesh, and we are not those people. We put no confidence in the flesh. That's the nature of who we are as God's people. We put our confidence in, we glory in, in God and in the Spirit of God, and we don't put our confidence in the flesh. This is very important, that phrase right there. We put no confidence in the flesh. Christian faith, true Christian faith, is a matter of confidence and where it's put. And it's very important, essential, that we have it put in the right place, in the right one. We are not allowed to have a diversification of confidences or an admixture of confidence. We can't put them here and there. We're not allowed to have a diversified portfolio of confidence. We are to have, we, there's only two options as Paul lays it out here. You can either glory in Christ like the true people of God with the Results, that's the result of entrusting yourself completely in him and having confidence in him. Or you can put your confidence in the flesh like the rest who are outside of Jesus. You cannot have it both ways. They're mutually exclusive choices. What does he mean by trusting in the flesh? What does that mean? Paul uses flesh in a number of ways, usually because he's attacking the Judaizers, and it's a play on words. This is like his way of, his mode of attack is to use irony, heavy with irony. So his use of the term flesh is not accidental. But he uses it in different ways at different times. Here I think he's meaning, to it, to, he uses it to refer to human advantages and achievements. Anything about yourself that you can appeal to for standing or worth over others. Whether it be ceremonial, hereditary, legal, or moral, or whatever. Any advantage you can point to in yourself that gives you a sense of, I, I score high. I score high because of X, Y, and Z. What Paul is saying here is that God's authentic people is true, the true descendants of Abraham, the real inheritors of Abrahamic promises, are those who glory in Christ Jesus exclusively. And they bring no claim of righteousness of their own to the table, to the bargaining table, into the equation. Nothing of their own, only Jesus. A true Christian doesn't harbor even the slight hope of commending himself to God on the basis of his own merit or work. That is an essential truth in Christian faith. We sing about this all the time. A couple of weeks ago, we sang these words. 
Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. That's a Christian's hope perfectly expressed, beautifully expressed in poetry. That's our approach to God if we're, if we're truly faithful and sincere and understanding the nature of what God has done and who God is. The Judaizers, on the other hand, though they profess to believe in Jesus, thought to press this additional ceremony of circumcision as an advantage, and that's the fleshly thing that they clung to as they came to Jesus, and they tried to get other people to cling to it with them. And that's all it takes, says Paul. That's all it takes. One thing like that, especially if it's accepted in principle as a, as a form of religion baked into the, the, the ethos. That's all it takes to invalidate and undo all that is offered in Jesus Christ. Reconciliation with God, peace with God is an, is an all or nothing proposition. The Judaizers, because they, they claimed Jesus plus circumcision, they are... This is, this is the equation that Paul is saying. It's like 99% Jesus and even 1% flesh is 100% flesh. That is how radical Christian faith is, that we come with nothing. We recognize that we have nothing to offer. And we look to God himself for to reconcile us to him, to bridge this unfathomably huge gap and gulf of his glory and our sinfulness and our guilt. This is where Paul starts to get really helpful. He goes on to talk about how he himself used to play the Judaizers game and a lot better than they can. He says in verse 4, Although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. So I pretty much, guys, have the corner on this whole thing, this whole scoring system. Take, for instance, just the circumstances of my heritage and my birth, okay? Let's just start there. Circumcised the eighth day. They want to talk about circumcision. Let's talk about my circumcision for a minute. It was in strict accordance with God's law. It wasn't just something to be done any day of your life when you, when you were ready to make that sort of decision. According to God's law, it was meant to be on the eighth day. So that's how mine was done, which means I was born into a family of covenant keepers and very careful, pe- people careful with religion. That's my heritage. That's my circumstance. How many of these Judaizers guys really can claim the same thing? That's, that's, that's my cred. Of the nation of Israel, he adds. So I never converted to Judaism. I was born a Jew. I'm no former Gentile or Johnny-come-lately. That's not me. Many of these Gentiles are, and many of these Judaizers are. I'm the genuine article. My parents were not proselytes either, nor my grandparents, nor my great-grandparents, or my great-great-great-grandparents, and so on. I can trace my lineage all the way back to the tribe of Benjamin, one of the 12 sons of Israel. That's my heritage. I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. 
I know where I came from. I can trace it all the way back, straight line. And now let's think about Benjamin for a second. He's, he's no ordinary son of, of Israel. He's Rachel's son, Israel's favored wife. Very precious to his father, especially so after Joseph was taken. And this tribe is no ordinary tribe in the history of Israel. Yeah, we've got our, fault, our faults. But when it mattered, we stood with the house of David. And we didn't give ourselves to rebellion and idolatry like the northern tribes. So this is, I'm, that's my tribe. And therefore, I'm a real Hebrew of Hebrews. I'm like, I am bona fide. I am summa cum laude Jew. And that's before I even get up in the morning. Let's talk about what I added to that in my own efforts, in my own decisions in life, okay? I make good decisions. Let's talk about that. As to the law, the law is important for the Jew. As to the law, a Pharisee. I didn't choose the Sadducees. I'm, I didn't choose nominalism or liberalism. I chose the, the serious bunch, the conservative bunch, the ones who were serious about the law of God. And I went to one of their best schools and was taught in God's law by one of their best, most famous teachers. Maybe you've heard of him, Gamaliel? As to the law, a Pharisee. And in the Bible, zeal, in the Old Testament, zeal is a very beloved trait to God. A lot of great heroes of the faith have been commended for their zeal. Let's talk about my zeal. Here was my zeal. Here's how it expressed itself. Mind you, this is in my mindset before I came to Christ. My zeal expressed itself. I was a persecutor of the church. Persecutor of the church. I thought it was important and necessary, absolutely, to stamp out anything that was in competition with pure Jewish religion. With, with, and so this Jesus movement and its openness to Gentiles and all this stuff was just like, I saw it for what it was and I went for it. I didn't just debate these people in public. I pursued them to foreign cities in order to arrest them. Men, women, it doesn't matter. I wanted to stamp this thing out. Such was my zeal. What about my righteousness, my law-keeping? As to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. And mind you, again, this is in my mindset as <laughs> before I came to Jesus and really knew what the law was for and knew how deep its demands went. But as we thought of it in those days, and as I thought about myself, I was blameless. I kept that thing better than anybody. I lived, I talked the talk, I walked the walk. I rested in the right way on the Sabbath. I wore the right clothes. I offered the right sacrifices. I did everything. Anybody looking at me would not say, there's a man who doesn't have his act together. He just can't, can't pull it off, can he? That's not how people thought of me. It's not how I thought of myself. No, in his words, he says, I... I outpaced most people in Judaism. He makes that claim in Galatians. I was extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions, and I kept them fervently and faithfully. Nobody looking at me would think, there goes a sinner. No, they'd think, there's a, there's a godly man, there's a real pace setter. 
He's going places. We're following him. That's what I added to the advantages of my birth. Those are the things that, when I was playing that game, that I could say to myself, that's, that's, what my, that's how my report card read. That's how my scorecard went. And now Paul's list there of fleshly advantages is like a template that you and I could fill in for ourselves. I know his score is just like, his argument is, I scored like a thousand points more than anybody. But you know, and, 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 he's, and he, he presents that in all of his supposed virtues. He gives the rationale positively why. But you know what? Each and, I, each and every one of us has our own scorecard. Our, and we are sophisticated enough that if we're not able to like play with the pace setters, we can turn our 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 we can turn our weaknesses into positives pretty well. We can turn our victimization or disadvantages into virtues. In fact, we live in a culture that loves to do that right now. So we were talking about this passage in our staff meeting this week, as we often do. And D. Wayne, who's on staff, was there. D. Wayne is right here. Can, can I read that? Okay, thank you. Can you stand up so everyone sees that you are D. Wayne? <laughs> and have a certain skin color, because it's important. Okay, just want everybody to know. D. Wayne's over there as we're talking, clack, clack, clacking away on his computer. <laughs> I tend to get annoyed when people in meetings are doing that. So I'm like, what is D. Wayne doing? D. Wayne, what are you doing? And D. Wayne says, well, I'm just doing a little exercise. Well, what is it? I'm just like filling in this like it was my story. I'm filling it in with my details. Really? Well, read it to us. Okay, so here's what he read. Although I myself, D. Wayne, might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. Born a poor black boy in the state of Virginia in a county of bigots and racists. Of the Oti tribe. I spoon, is that a family name? Family heritage. Of the Oti tribe. A black man of black men. As to the law, an oppressed man. As to zeal, a member of a white church. That one's pretty sophisticated. You might even have to explain it to me. A member of a white church. As to the righteousness which is in the law, found busy. He said working, but I said no, busy. Busy is a better descriptor for D. Wayne. Busy. Everyone knows his energy and his work ethic. He's a busy man. Busy doing what? Good things. Helpful things. Serving us. Caring for the orphan. Fathering our young people. That's D. Wayne. If D. Wayne wanted to, he could get a lot of mileage out of that list, and he could add to it if he had a few more minutes to think it through. He could perfect it. And he could use that as his cred and gain a lot of advantage in the eyes of people and even in his own sight. What about you? What's your scorecard? What does it read like? 
you filled in those details yourself, how, how would it read? Let's just talk about, start with where Paul starts, with, with, with heritage and up, upbringing and things that you are, receive as a function of your birth. What about nationality? Nationality give you any cred in your thinking? Is there, is there, any, is, is there an American exceptionalism? in anybody's mind. What about if you're Canadian with respect to the Americans? Is there, is there any Canadian righteousness that you can fill in on your scorecard? What about if you're Korean? Zion, is there any Korean righteousness? You got that going on? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> any German righteousness in the room? Who scores high? <laughs> Who scores highest? What about the region that you come from in your country? Any righteousness or cred there? Is there East Coast righteousness? West Coast? Is there any Midwestern righteousness? Oh, yeah. Northern, Southern. City, town. What about your family? Killingsworth righteousness. If you were from where I'm from, you would know that that's kind of respect. You know, that's got some cred. Generations of it. A lot of pastors were there when people need us, you know? That's the Killingsworths. What about Cochran cred? Tallman cred? Star cred? Missionaries, my goodness. What about your physique? Is there height cred? Anybody's got on their scorecard? That, how do you score with height? Beauty, natural beauty. Maybe you don't have natural beauty, but you know how to take care of yourself, and my goodness, she doesn't even seem to bother. Dieting, in good shape, righteousness. I don't care how I look, righteousness. What about your educational, things that you start, now we're moving into things that we add, okay? But your educational background? How far, have you, how, how far have you gone in education? High school diploma, undergraduate degree, which school? Oh, hmm, well I'm from this school. I have a master's degree. I went to that school, but I got a master's degree from that school. I have a doctorate. In what field? Oh, I have a doctorate in a lot of educational cred, educational righteousness that easily goes in that score card. What about professional righteousness? Is there any of that? Is there such thing as white collar cred? Is there anything as, such as blue-collar cred? So I was just thinking which styles of music favor which one. Country music, blue-collar cred. I like country music. I'm growing to like it. <laughs> what about with your approach to health and medicine? 
I'm modern medicine cred. I got modern medicine cred. I'll just admit it. That's where I, I go. I side with modern medicine. That's my tendency. I look down on people who don't. I don't understand you. I've got holistic, whole person, natural cred, you know? What about diet? Any keto cred? Vegetarian cred? Vegan cred? Sugar-free? I eat whatever I want to cred? How about how you keep your home, your space, your car, your stuff? Is there anything, any, anything out there such as tidiness cred? There is. I got a tidy woman to admit it in the first service. Well, I'm glad I'm not uptight like she is. Can you imagine being married to her, cred? <laughs> Whew. Too clean. Too clean. I take care of my lawn. I know how to take care of my lawn, cred. I know how to follow the maintenance schedules on all of my machinery, cred. I don't let my machines go to, you know, time out early. What about in your parenting? Family devotions, cred? Uh, probably not many of us have that. Denver does. Got discipline righteousness going for you? Know how to do discipline right? You know Harry Potter's evil, right? Some people know Harry Potter's just fine, just a bit of fun. Both of them can give you cred. Standing. I got classical schooling cred. And Latin education. What about with your moral and spiritual choices? I trust God with my womb cred. I got modesty cred. I don't eat out on Sundays cred. I got liberty in Christ cred. I got outreach and evangelism. I care about my neighbors cred. What's wrong with all these other people? I don't think they really understand. They're not on mission. I'm, I've got mission cred. I got Bible on my phone cred. There's Bible on paper cred. There's translation of the Bible cred. Young people who go to school, you got cred that goes with your school, that you look down on other people who go to other schools. I got Seven Oaks cred. I got Cedars cred. I got LCA cred. I got homeschool cred. I do have homeschool cred. What a, young people, what about your view of other people, other kids that are different from you, different backgrounds and different ideas, different ways of thinking than you. You got cool cred and they're not cool. You, you got, they're so worldly. I'm not worldly cred. I got the right world. You got worldview cred? Any worldview cred out there? That's the problem with everybody. They just don't have the right worldview. You got Baptist cred, Pado Baptist cred, Calvinistic Reformed cred. 
post-mill, theonomy, Calvinistic, reformed cred. I started to add a lot more, but I just, just leave that hanging. Denominational affiliation, church affiliation cred. I'm a member of Trinity Reformed Church. That's where it's happening. That's the best church. So it gives me my standing, my cred. I can look down on people because they're not, they don't understand. Political, aesthetics, taste, musical preferences, the way you spend your free time, the, the car brand that you buy or won't buy ever. Volkswagen. <laughs> military service, branch of the military. Sports team. Sport. What you read, whether you read, whether you're cu- intellectually curious or not, where you shop, what you buy, where you go on vacation, how efficient you are with your tasks, whether you maximize your potential or not, whether other people do. I don't think we've scratched the surface. It's not that all these things are indifferent. That is not the lesson. It's not like we live in a world where it just doesn't matter what you think or what you do or how you behave or the choices you make. It's not even, if I can take a real risk here, it's not even like where you're born doesn't really mean like there's some advantages tied to it. Or even some moral things tied to it. Paul acknowledges that in Scripture. All Cretans are liars. There's a moral claim connected to a a race of people. It's not not that, that the lesson is not that everything, it doesn't matter. We're just relativists. And so to, to make any distinctions or point to any differences or advantages is always wrong and only wrong. No. It's not, Paul is not like trying to say, You can do whatever you want. He's not trying to say you can abuse grace however you want to. Obedience is important to Paul. And it it should be important to us. Obedience is important. It has its place. But when it comes to this question of your confidence and where it is and what it's in, none of this stuff matters a hill of beans before God, at the, at the place of your justification and reconciliation with him. It is no advantage. And Paul's going to say it was even a disadvantage. That whole scorecard, its existence, is a disadvantage that I had to come to see, and I had to rip it up and surrender it to Jesus. I had to give up that whole game. It was deadly to me. Where is your confidence? Where is it? What is it in? That's the most important question in your life. Where do you put your confidence and your hope? Is Jesus on the card? 
Is he written all over the card? Is it Jesus? Yes, but my right worldview and thinking. Is it Jesus plus my compassion for difficult, hurting, suffering people? I've suffered myself, and so I have compassion for people, and that's my righteousness plus Jesus. Jesus plus that. Is it Jesus plus how my children compare to other people's children? Jesus plus my diet or my beauty or my work ethic. Jesus plus my sense of alarm for how bad things are going. My righteous indignation about the, way, the state of things around me. Is that your card? You know, I don't even... If that's your card, Jesus plus anything, it's a really muddled card. It is inconsistent with itself. And it's no wonder if that's your card, your cred card. It's no wonder that you're unhappy. And you're not abounding in the joy of the Lord. Because each one of those things that you add to Jesus is so unworthy and so unable and so unstable and so weak as far as it comes to play, where you place your confidence, when it comes to the, how on earth you bridge this gap between you, a sinner, and a holy God, that only Jesus can do it. Only Jesus can do it. And it's not like what you got to do. I think it's a bad illustration, actually, to say that what you need to do is get your eraser out and erase all those things that were formerly on the card and write Jesus in every blank. You got to rip up the card entirely and throw it away. Paul doesn't compare this card to the Jesus card. <laughs> He's like, I, that was my scorecard. Those were my advantages. And I counted them loss for the sake of knowing a person. Knowing a person, Jesus Christ. Knowing him personally. Knowing him as my Savior. So with God's help, brothers and sisters, the degree to which all of us are muddled in our thinking at the point of our justification and we allow things like our own efforts and our own works and our own standing compared to other people to enter into the question of our confidence before God and what it's based on, who's worthy to be there. We, with God's help, we need to tear it up entirely, throw it away. Get rid of it. Because you know what? It's not just unhelpful to us and weak and impotent. It's sin. It's sin to cling to anything like that. Because Jesus alone can save. Jesus has given his all to save. Jesus is able to save. Jesus is wanting to save. He is the Savior. To add anything to that is to steal from Him. And it won't go well for you. Surrender it to God in repentance and come to Jesus and find everything. Everything. He's 
generous and liberal and able and will give it to you. So come empty-handed. Come naked for dress in him. And there is joy to be found in that that can only come from that, from resting in him and trusting in him and finding, oh, I wake up every day before I get up in the morning. I've got a perfect scorecard in Jesus Christ. That's my starting point. I can't detract from it. He's pledged it to me. That's his righteousness. He's made it mine. He's taken all my guilt and bared the penalty for it. And he said, here's my scorecard. You can have that. Always. I got a lot of them to give to my people. There's joy like no other to be found in that. Resting in Jesus and his work. And there is progressive joy to be found in it as you get to know Jesus more and more throughout your life. Paul's going to talk about both these joys in the verses that follow. The joy of what it means to find your all in Jesus. And the joy of knowing him more and more. For now, though, let's bow our heads in prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. And I pray, dear Father, that you would use it to expose in us things that are hypocrisy, wrong, muddled, sinful, confused, and this question of confidence. And that we would come to find that our confidence is in Jesus and Jesus is all we need. And we must turn away from every other hope to find in him what we need. Help us to do that, Father, and to root out in ourselves with your help, with your Spirit's leading anything in us that is unworthy of you, anything that is proud, anything that we're clinging to from our flesh. Would you help us to surrender it to the glory of God and learn to glory in Jesus as we should. We ask this in your name. Amen.